Life can be overwhelming. You know that as well as I do. You may know, well know that better than I do. Overwhelming grief and loss. I was at a funeral late last year and I watched the grief of a wife, sons, grandchildren, wrestling with how you live without your husband, your father, your grandfather. Overwhelming family pressures. Children who don't sleep for years. Grown-up children making decisions that are unwise, and I'm being polite in that description. Parents getting older, marriages that are difficult, marriages that don't exist. Parents and siblings who have no idea what your life is really like. Overwhelming financial pressures, the house, the job, the groceries, the super. Overwhelming health issues. People with long-term or degenerative illnesses, people caring for people with long-term or degenerative illnesses, the darkness of depression, mental illness, a terminal diagnosis. Overwhelming work pressures or study demands. A job that expects more than you can give and may not be there next week. Bosses, colleagues who are unpleasant. And there's that politeness again. The suspicion that no matter how hard you work, you will never make the cut. Overwhelming loneliness. Surrounded by people who don't really know you, with no guarantee that they will be there for you. A partner, a marriage that hasn't eventuated or didn't work out when it did. Overwhelming fear that that photo, that event, that decision, that ugly sin that you have been fighting for years will one day become public. It'll leap out of your past and into your present to damage your future. The overwhelming disappointment of not being who you wanted to be, who you hoped you would be, nor is your work, nor is your family, nor are your friends, and frankly, nor is your church. And sometimes we feel like we've been overwhelmed for years. It grinds you down as you get up every morning and deal with it. And sometimes we're overwhelmed all of a sudden. Life was going well until insert relevant crisis. And you've no idea how you move forward from here. Life can be overwhelming. Um, now people deal with overwhelm, being feeling overwhelmed in different ways. You know, some people are loud and panicky. Everyone knows just how close to the edge they are. Um, others are private and contained. The desperation is real, but it's hidden. Some self-medicate with substances or self-harm. I mean, it won't solve the problem, but it might take the edge off it for a while. Still others pretend that nothing is wrong. You can live in denial for a long time. <laughs> Work hard, exhaust yourself so you don't lie awake worrying. Play hard, exhaust yourself so that you don't lie awake worrying. Just keep swimming. <laughs> or maybe wry cynicism is your thing. Lower your expectations of life so that failing to meet them doesn't seem so bad. Chuckle at the naivety, the naivety of other people who think it might get better. See, life can be overwhelming. In our passage today, we meet two people in overwhelming situations. People desperate for help, desperate to get out of the situation, the circumstances they're in, and in desperation they turn to Jesus. The first person we meet is Jairus. Read with me from verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. 
Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, in many ways, life has been good to Jairus. He's a respected Jewish leader. He has a lovely daughter. They are both wonderful blessings from God. But the only thing that now matters to him is that his daughter is dying. Can you imagine the state he's in? That overwhelming fear that the one you love will not be there anymore. The overwhelming realisation that you can't protect the people you love. That being important and successful doesn't protect you from those things. But Jesus is in town. And Jairus, like the rest of the crowd, he's heard the stories. You can read them for yourself. Read the Gospels and find out what Jesus was saying and doing. Stories of Jesus' power to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, cast out evil spirits, make the lame walk. Teach from the scriptures in a way no other leader can. Jesus is in town. Jairus has heard the stories. His daughter is dying and this father is not too proud to beg, not when it comes to his daughter. He comes to Jesus hoping that what overwhelms him won't overwhelm Jesus. Hoping that Jesus has the desire and the ability to do something about it. On the way to Jairus' house, we meet our second person, a woman. Read with me verse 43. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Now this woman's life is about as different from Jairus' life as you can get. Luke doesn't tell us her name, her position, her family. She's a nobody. Which, given her illness, I understand. Um, she's described as subject bleeding, um, probably a polite way of talking about menstrual bleeding, something most of us do actually want to keep fairly private. Can you imagine what her life is like? Um, I remember my mother bleeding for months before she had a hysterectomy. Uh, the pain, the weakness, the spell, the fear of going out in case something showed. This woman was bleeding not for 12 years. This, this woman was bleeding for 12 years. Not 12 days, not 12 weeks, not 12 months, 12 years. She was bleeding as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. What would that do to your marriage? Or do you hope of getting married? Your ability to have children, I mean, or to care for the children, what does that do? Jairus was a synagogue leader. This woman would have been considered religiously unclean. Um, if you read the book of Leviticus, there's a number of non-sinful things that make someone unclean. Now, some of them are male-specific, some of them are female-specific, some of them are general, right? Crosses the line, bored. Menstrual bleeding isn't sinful, but it would make a woman unclean. Now, that means this woman couldn't go to the temple to worship God. And other Jewish people wouldn't touch her because she'd make them unclean and then that would stuff up their relationship with God. And I, just, I think this poor, this anonymous, this isolated, desperate woman, physically vulnerable, socially vulnerable, spiritually vulnerable. And we're told in Mark's account of this story that she'd spent all she had on doctors. She's got nothing left. If anyone has a right to feel overwhelmed, it's her. I imagine she prayed over those 12 years, don't you? 
Uh, dear God, please take the bleeding away. Asked God why he let this happen. And then when nothing changed, wondered whether God was real. Or if he was, whether he was good. And then she heard that Jesus was in town. And she'd heard the same stories Jairus had, the same stories we can read. And this woman comes to Jesus, hoping that what overwhelms her won't overwhelm him. Hoping that Jesus has the desire and the ability to do something. Hoping that Jesus can give her peace, give her rest. Verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Jairus walked up to Jesus and asked. This woman comes up behind Jesus without words. <laughs> the way they approach him, the way they put their faith in them, shows you their lives, doesn't it? Her identity was hidden by the jostling crowd, a private woman with private pain who gets to Jesus, who touches Jesus, and immediately her bleeding stops. Now, at this point, right, I imagine her just wanting to sink back into the crowd as it keeps moving forward, go home and cry with relief, right? That's what I'd be thinking. But Jesus wouldn't let her do this. Who touched me? Jesus asked. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out of me. I don't know that I don't know how Jesus knew that power had gone out of him, but he did. Power had gone out of him to heal her. I think it suggests that maybe healing took him some effort. <laughs> Cost him a bit to care for people like this. Jesus stops and asks, Who touched me? It's a, a deliberate, a calculated question. He wants to meet her. He wants her to show herself. Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now, I understand why she was trembling. Now, for the last 12 years, she has been invisible at best despised and avoided at worst, and maybe pitied if people were kind. Here she's been forced into the public. Because Jesus is going to give her more than she asked for or expected. She came to him for healing. I touch you, I get well, I go home. Jesus wanted to give her far more than that. He wanted to give her himself. A relationship with him. He wants to know her. He wants her to know him so that she can know she's known and loved. He wants to bring her back into the community. He wants people to know she's been healed. He wants her to know she is welcome amongst them. He wants them to know to welcome her amongst them. And Jesus' words to her, I think, are just lovely in verse 48. Daughter, your faith has healed you. 
Go in peace. Daughter. The same word Jairus used to describe his dying daughter who was so precious to him. It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls a woman a daughter. Your faith has healed you. Touching Jesus hasn't healed her. That's superstitious magic. Trusting Jesus has healed her. Trust, not touch. Trusting that he was good and powerful. Trusting that he could and would heal her. Her relationship with him has healed her. Go in peace. Depart with and under God's blessing. Secure in the knowledge that through Jesus, God has healed her. He has heard her prayers. The desperation of the past 12 years replaced with peace in the future. See, Jesus has healed her not just physically, he has healed her relationship with God, healed her relationship with those around her. She's welcome to enjoy the fullness of life alongside him and alongside them. Peace with God, peace with us, peace with her own body. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has said these words to a woman. He said it to another woman a chapter earlier in Luke 7, verse 50. The woman he was speaking to then, she was a sinner, despised by the religious elite. And she came to Jesus and she wept on his feet and she dried her tears with her hair and she anointed him with perfume. And she did these things because she was overwhelmed by love for him. She did these things. She was overwhelmed by love for him because he had forgiven her sins that no one else could deal with. Jesus says to her in Luke 7.50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. It's the same word translated healed and saved. So cross out healed on your page, right? Right, saved. Same word. Healed's a good translation in the context, but somehow you miss the connection. Both are pictures of salvation that Jesus offers us. Forgiveness of sins, healing of the body, healing of relationships. Salvation includes being healed, but it's bigger than that. It's about all things being put right. But more of that later. Let's return to Jairus in verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, you might want to try and imagine what Jairus is thinking right now. His daughter is dying. Jesus has stopped to heal and talk with a nobody who's been suffering for 12 years, so you could hardly call it an emergency. The healing could have waited. The whole palaver about who touched me. See, everyone knew Jesus could heal people. Raising someone from the dead is a whole different ballgame. Trusting Jesus to heal is one thing. Trusting him to raise the dead is another. Verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. Cross out healed again and write saved. Same word again. They get to Jairus' house and the morning's already started. It's loud and it's busy and it's sad. 
So when Jesus says to Jesus in verse 52, stop wailing, she's not dead but asleep, they laugh at him, knowing she's dead. They're not idiots. They don't believe in fairy stories. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Such a remarkable event is told with so little fanfare. The woman needed to be brought into the public, but the resurrection of Jairus's daughter is best kept private. There are words in this, these verses that have great meanings for Christians. See the words get up and stood up, verse 54, 55. Later on in the Bible, they are used to speak about Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. You see, Luke is pointing us to something bigger. These are not just stories about a woman being healed and a daughter being brought back to life. They are both pointers to the forgiveness, the new life, to the salvation that Jesus offers anyone and everyone who trusts him. So what do we do with these stories? How do they give us rest when we risk being overwhelmed? See, I think these stories tell us that Jesus knows us and our needs. Jesus knows how anxious and scared we are sometimes, how overwhelmed we feel by life and the circumstances we find ourselves in. Jesus is not a God who stands at a distance watching, waiting, testing. He lived among people just like us, Jairus and this woman, people who get sick and die, people who suffer. And if you read this story with the other stories around it, there's other miracle stories where Jesus calms storms and casts out demons. People lived with people, he lived with people like us. Jesus is not a God who stands at a distance. If you read this story alongside the rest of the story of Jesus' life and death, you will find that he was humiliated and rejected by the people he loved people who should have loved him. He was treated unjustly, declared guilty when he was innocent. He was surrounded by people wanting him to help them, people telling him who he should be, could be. That was his life. Hebrews 4.15 talks about Jesus when it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, Jesus is not a God who stands at a distance. He lived among us. He still lives among us. Not physically. I don't get to pop down and have him heal me. But he lives among us as he lives within us through his spirit. Jairus and this woman had a brief and magnificent encounter with Jesus, but we have him with us all the time, through all of life, not just a couple of events in life. And he knows that life gets overwhelming. He knows that your life gets overwhelming because he knows you. So I think the first thing I want to say is trust him. He knows you and your needs. Come to him with your anxiety and stresses and fears. Pray about them. Pray to him. Tell him what you are thinking and feeling. 
I worry sometimes that we don't pray what we think and feel. We clean up our prayers to make them the right prayers. Because everything needs to end with praise be to God. I worry they're a bit gutless in our prayers. You read some of the Psalms and they are raw. They tell God how they are feeling, what they are thinking. Both when they're excited and when they're not. We pray what we think we're meant to pray. When life threatens to overwhelm, pray what is on your heart. He knows what you're thinking and feeling anyway. <laughs> I mean, own it, pray it. I mean, hiding it's a waste of time and precious energy that you don't have. That's what Jesus did at Gethsemane when the cross loomed large before him. As he approaches the cross, he knows what is coming and it threatens to overwhelm him. And so he comes to his father and he prays. From Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Okay, my paraphrase of that, if there's another way, can we take it? Because I'm terrified. But I know there's not. And I trust that you know what you're doing and that we want to do this together. And so I'll keep going. Somehow talking with God strengthens him gives him a peace and a rest and an energy to move forward and do what he knew needed to be done. He doesn't get any new information. There is a rest in knowing that you're not alone, in knowing that God hears you and is with you. Trust him. He knows and understands you. He knows and loves you. There is a real rest and strengthening in that. I mean, that's why we share things with our friends, even when they know we know they can do nothing. We tell them, because somehow knowing they know, knowing they care, knowing that we're not alone. Find rest when life threatens to overwhelm. Talk to Jesus, trust him. Don't be afraid, just believe, and you will be saved. But these stories tell us more than that Jesus understands us. They tell us that Jesus has power over the things that overwhelm us. See, so much happens in life that we can't control, can't predict, can't change. But what is out of control for us is not out of control for Jesus. Jesus has power over the things that threaten to overwhelm us, and he is willing and he is able to use that power to save us. But Jesus is offering us far more than an occasional healing and a resurrection. He is offering to end those things forever. The stories we read today are wonderful events, magnificent acts of love and power, but their effects are only temporary. These people will get sick again. Jairus and his daughter will die. And they'll remember these events, but over time new threats appear. They always do. It's the nature of the world we live in. It's the nature of the people we live among. We need more than temporary interventions. Wonderful as, though they, as they are. These events are wonderful, but they, they point to something even more wonderful. They're, they're kind of like matches that you strike and they blaze brightly for a, light, for a while and they, they show you what, the re, what reality is, what the world around you is like. See, now they, along with all Jesus' miracles, give a picture of things to come, a new creation, not just a storm that's calmed. Evil and Satan banished forever. Not just a few people freed from demons. Sickness gone. 
not just a few people in the vicinity of Jesus 2,000 years ago healed. Death, a memory for good. Not just a temporary stay of execution. Jesus is not offering us palliative care. A bit of pain management here and there to make life a bit more pleasant for us until we die. He is offering an entirely new life, an entirely new future. Palliative care is for the dying. Ladies, we belong to the Lord of life. Jesus is Lord over all we fear. He is the king who has come to establish God's kingdom on earth. He is bringing us into a future free from all fear. But to do that, he has to deal with the root cause of our problems. Sickness and death are symptoms of a much bigger problem. They aren't the real problem, even though they feel like they are. And frankly, if the, sim if the symptoms are that bad, you've got to wonder how dreadful the disease is. See, our real problem is sin. Our own sin and the sin of those around us. Our decision to turn our back on God, the one who gives us life and health. Our decision to trust ourselves, to think and to act like we control our lives. The decision to trust someone or something in this world to provide what we need. Trusting these things won't give us rest. Because no one and nothing in this world can meet our needs. We're trusting people and things that will always disappoint us, always fail. And if we're trusting these things, it's no wonder we feel overwhelmed. Our real problem is sin and our need for sin to be forgiven. We need the effects of sin in our world, the broken relationships, bodies, emotions. We need them unwound. And for that to happen, we need to trust the God who made us. On the cross, Jesus deals with what causes all of these things. He pays the price for our sin, he takes our death on himself, and he defeats death and sin and Satan by rising from the dead. And when you trust Jesus, this future is yours. See, I think these stories show me a picture of the future that changes my perspective on the now. These stories tell me that when life is out of control for me, it is not out of control for Jesus. That I can come to him and ask him for what I need. But they don't tell me that Jesus will give me everything I ask for. What I think I need. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't give these people what they ask for? The woman wanted healing. But Jesus forces her to trust him enough to publicly identify herself. He stretches her faith strengthens her faith, grows her faith, so that she can meet him personally and know that she is loved. Not just healed, but loved. Welcomed by God and welcomed by people. She actually gets more than she asked for. Jairus wanted his daughter healed, but Jesus forces him to wait. And eventually to trust that Jesus will raise the dead. Jesus stretches Jairus' faith, strengthens his faith, grows his faith, so that Jairus doesn't just meet Jesus the healer, he meets Jesus the life giver. He gets more than he asks for. So these stories suggest to me that as I wait for Jesus to return, I will sometimes, maybe often, ask for things that Jesus might not give. My prayers might be answered with a yes or they might be answered with a no or a later 
or I've got a better idea. As Jesus stretches my faith, strengthens my faith, grows my faith. As he provides opportunity for me to again entrust myself to his care, to his power and goodness. As I remember these stories, I remember his death and resurrection, I remember that he's good, I remember that his will is best. As I remember that God is not punishing me. Jesus took the punishment for my sins. And he's doing that so that the Jesus I know, the Jesus I am looking forward to meeting face to face, is the real Jesus. Not the one I think he should be. Because the real Jesus is better than the one I can imagine. So when you pray, expect him to listen and care. Don't expect him to give you exactly what you ask for. Expect him to give you what you need, even if you don't know you need it yet. And frankly, even if you don't want it. Expect him to give you himself a deeper understanding of who he is and what he's doing in the world a greater awareness of him walking with you as you walk together into the future, a greater longing for and anticipation of his coming kingdom and rule. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A few years ago, um, a Vietnamese student rang me late one afternoon. She was married one child at home in Vietnam, pregnant with her second, doing well in her master's degree. Life was good. She wasn't a Christian but was interested in finding out about Jesus. I'd caught up with her a couple of times to chat. Um, the afternoon she rang me, she'd received bad news. The doctor had told her um, that the baby she was pregnant with would die before it was born. And she rang to ask me, where is God? What do you say? I went to her house to talk with her. And I told her that Jesus has power over life and death. We pretend to have power over life. We try. But things happen and you know, you know, you know that's a lie. But I told her that Jesus has power over life and death. And I know that because he raised people from the dead. And I know that because he rose from the dead. And I told her that Jesus promised new life, eternal life, healthy life to anyone and everyone who trusted him. And I told her that becoming a Christian didn't guarantee her child would live. I told her I thought Jesus can do that. There are stories of him doing that, but it's rare and that's why we call them a miracle. If they happen all the time, it wouldn't be a miracle anymore. And I told her I would pray and ask Jesus to heal her baby. I told her the reason I trusted Jesus, even when circumstances in life were difficult, when life made me wonder whether God was good or God was powerful, I told her I trusted Jesus because he came from heaven, and earth, from heaven to earth to suffer and die for me, to bring me to heaven, to change my life. And if he was prepared to do that, I knew he was good, whatever life was currently throwing at me and I would back his judgment over mine. Uh, she knew very little about the cross and forgiveness and how Jesus saves people. Um, she would have failed a doctrinal test. But she did entrust her life and her unborn child's life to Jesus. She became a Christian. 
who, rather than being overwhelmed, trusted Jesus to help. And as people read with her about Jesus in the following months, she came to understand how Jesus saves, as she understood the cross and she understood forgiveness. And her child died. But she is confident that they will be reunited in heaven because she trusts Jesus. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace.